Welcome to Earth Matters here on Gila Members Community Radio, KURU 89.1 FM, Silver City. This is Allison Civic, Executive Director of Gila Resources Information Project, a nonprofit advocacy organization that promotes community health by protecting our environment and natural resources. I also serve as the director of the Gila Conservation Coalition that works to protect the free flow of the Gila and San Francisco rivers and the wilderness characteristics of the Gila and Aldo Leopold wilderness areas. In September, the Gila Conservation Coalition organized the 17th annual Gila River Festival that explored our connection to nature, how the environment shapes human identity, and celebrated our connection to one another and to the Gila River watershed. Today on Earth Matters, we're bringing to you the Sunny Cicillo Memorial Gila River Festival keynote address that honored the dedicated Gila River Festival volunteer, Sunny Cicillo, who passed away in March 2021 while hiking in the Gila that she loved so much. The first annual memorial keynote was presented by philosopher and author Kathleen Dean Moore. The title of her talk was The Work of Loving the World. Thanks to the New Mexico Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities for their generous support of the Gila River Festival and this keynote presentation. Susan Beck, president of the Western Institute for Lifelong Learning, served as moderator for the talk. Let's listen. And now I'm honored to introduce our keynote speaker. Kathleen Dean Moore is an author, author who has gifted us with many remarkable books, such as Earth's Wild Music, celebrating and defending the songs of the natural world and the ever favorite river walking reflections on moving water. She is a moral philosopher who is deeply committed to engaged philosophy, which contributes to the public discourse about the critical issues of our time. She is well known for her seamless integration of philosophical reflection and personal experience. Her books and other publications draw the reader in so they can actually have an experience as impactful as her own. As an environmental advocate, her work applies ecological concepts to the challenges of making a powerful moral response to our environmental emergencies. She brings us into greater awareness and the need for action by asking, if we truly understood that we live in a complete, in complete dependence on an earth that is interconnected, interdependent, infinite, and resilient, could we imagine a better set of ideas about our moral responsibilities to one another and to the earth and to the future? And I actually misspoke there. The earth is finite, not infinite. And so that's a really important distinction. Kathleen's forthcoming book is entitled Take Heart, Encouragement for Earth's Weary Lovers. Kathleen, we're all very much looking forward to hearing from you this evening. And I know Sunny Cecilia would have loved learning from you too. And now for her keynote address entitled The Work of Loving the World, Kathleen Dean Moore. Hey, thank you so much, Donna and Susan and Allison and all the friends of your dear Sunny Cecilia. What an honor it is to give a talk in her memory. Uh, such a woman she must have been with her eyes full of sunshine and her heart full of joy. I'd have liked to have been her friend. So I'm really glad to be here. I've tried for three years. Every time Donna called me, I would say, oh, I'm, I'm already scheduled this year, but, but ask me again. I thought, I really want to give this talk because I would get to go down to the Gila River and I want to walk with the people who love it. Uh, there is nothing 
more rewarding for a nature writer than to look at the sources of people's joy. But as you can see, that didn't exactly work. So I'm in this frustrating situation of having a conversation about a river I have never seen, but I have dreamed about it for three years. And you can tell me if I got it right. So I'm picturing a canyon. I'm picturing many canyons, a whole system of canyons branching like a gamble's oak, sustaining this secret skittering miracle of water. A canyon is, of course, rocks. Just add water and the rocks come alive. Rain on sandstone, rocks start to sing, trackling, trickling water, wind clattering in the cottonwoods. I am guessing that I can hear a canyon wren. That's my favorite bird song in the whole world. Its song, as you know, is the sound of falling water dropping from ledge to ledge down to the next layer of stone time. And down again, the falling scale, eight tones of liquid octave of bird song. I love it. And I have only just recently learned that the canyon wren, male and female, sing duets. So I've been on YouTube listening to the duets of the canyon wrens, and I'm guessing that there are frogs in the Gila River. Um, the Arizona tree frog, does it really say quack, 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 quack? <laughs> I'm guessing there are rattlesnakes. A wild and beautiful network of tributaries and canyons alive with the urgency of ongoing life. Am I getting it right? I imagine people down with shovels there laughing and calling out while they plant willows. I can hear their silence when the work is done. Resting on their shovels, they listen to the music of the free-flowing water. Somebody in my imagination is stretching her back. Another one is offering sandwiches. There's something red in the top of a sycamore tree that has caught the attention of a woman in a floppy hat. Am I close? A vermilion flycatcher? Maybe? A painted red start? I have never seen a painted red start. Okay, so tell me, what am I not hearing? Do lizards skitter in the dry mesquite leaves? Do doves call out? Does the gambles quail sound like, what, 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 what? I heard that on YouTube, but I don't quite believe it. It's too metaphorical. It's too perfectly translated. Of course, all my life, I've been taught the translations of bird calls, like American goldfinches say, potato chip, and barred owls say, who cooks for you? And the ornithologists, in my experience, translate the Eastern Tohi's call as hot dog pickle. Hot dog pickle. You'd think these ornithologists were hungry, but you know, I wonder sometimes if they have other needs besides foods. For example, the thermit, hermit thrush says, why don't you come to me? Here I am right near you. Why don't you come to me? And the solitary vireo calls, come here, Jimmy, quickly. But then we're back to the presumed hunger of the McGillard race warbler. Chip, chewy, chew. <laughs> You're probably going to tell me that you also have a bird that calls out, why, 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 why this long and rocky river course? Why this dazzling, light-spattered, bird-graced water? Why are you celebrating and protecting it? Because you love it. And that leads me to our subject. I want tonight to think hard about what it means to love a place. That, by the way, is what philosophers do. There's always this question about what, what does a philosopher actually do? My daughter, when she was about five, was asked this by a neighbor lady. Well, what does your mother do? Well, she does philosophy. And what 
is philosophy. And my daughter said, oh, it's just something women do. (laughs) I think I can do better than that. I think I can tell you that just as biology is a study of life, geology is a study of rocks, philosophy is a study of ideas. And the idea that we've chosen for tonight, the idea of love, is a doozy. So in honor of all the people who have taken the Gila River into their hearts, I want to make the case that loving a place is more than a romance. It is a kind of work. And I want to make the case that it's our great privilege. In fact, it is our sacred calling in a shattering world to do the work of loving, putting things back together again, reconnecting the water to the river course, the birds to the bosques, reconnecting the sandals to the sandy trails, reconnecting the bare feet to the green pools, reconnecting freedom to the falling water, reconnecting our spirits to the singing shadows of the riverside trees. I think I should pause to note that there may be people who are rolling their eyes to think about spending an hour talking about love. (laughs) I once spoke to an organization of park rangers, people who love the land if anybody does, intently, pragmatically, in the rhythm of their daily lives. And one man came up to me afterwards and he said, I like what you say, but I wonder if you could say it without using the L word. I thought, what is he talking about? I thought he was talking about maybe liberals or something. And he says, no, no, love. And I said, oh, well, it wasn't enough to point out to him that Hallmark has taken the word love, kidnapped it, and beaten it senseless. But my first instinct was to think that maybe he belonged to the great sorrow of scientists who have, for so many parts of their lives, had to hide their great love of what they studied, generations of them trained like secret lovers to the stern silence about their feelings. But I'm happy to talk about listening. That's certainly how I express it in my book, The The Earthswild Music. But the kind of love I want to talk about might not be what that forest ranger was talking about. The kind of love I'm talking about isn't located just in the heart. It's in the sinew and the gristle. And it's in those horny calluses where your foot meets your boot. There's nothing gooey or sentimental about the kind of love I'm talking about. So let me summarize the argument um, by reading to you a little essay uh, that's um, called The Angelus. I'm going to only read you a little part of it. Um, In order for me to read this, I need to take you to Oregon uh, into a pond in the middle of the Willamette Valley. Uh, We made this pond. We tried to save this land, and it's becoming harder and harder to keep it a welcoming place for the frogs and the meadowlarks who are becoming scarcer and scarcer. So here's how it goes toward the end. In the spring when our granddaughter was born, I brought her to the pond so she could feel the comfort I had known there for so many years. Kildare waddled in the mud by the shore, but even then not so many as before. By then the pond had sunk into its warm weedy places, leaving an expanse of cracked earth. Ahead of the coming heat, Butterflies fed in the mud between the cracks, unrolling their tongues to touch salty soil. I held my granddaughter in my arms and sang to her then, an old lullaby that made her soften like wax in a flame, molding her little body to my bones. She fell asleep in my arms, unafraid. I will tell you, I was so afraid. Poets warned us, writing of the heartbreaking beauty that will remain when there is no heart to break for it. But what if it's worse than that? What if it's the heartbroken children who remain in a world without beauty, 
How will they find solace in a world without wild music? How will they thrive without green hills edged with oaks? How will they forgive us for letting frog songs slip away? When my granddaughter looks back at me, will I be on my knees, begging her to say I did all I could? I didn't do all I could have done. It isn't enough to love a child and wish her well. It isn't enough to open my heart to a bird-graced morning. Can I claim to love a morning if I don't protect what creates its beauty? Can I claim to love a child if I don't use all the power of my beating heart to preserve a world that nourishes children's joy? Loving is not a kind of la-di-da. Loving is a sacred trust. To love is to affirm the absolute love of what you, the absolute worth of what you love and to pledge your life to its thriving, to protect it fiercely and faithfully for all time. Ring the Angelus for the salmon and the swallows. Ring the bells for frogs floating in bent reeds. Ring the bells for all of us who did not save the songs. Holy Mary, Mother of God, ring the bells for every sacred emptiness. Let them echo in the silence at the end of the day. Forgiveness is too much to ask. I would pray for only this, that our granddaughter could hear again that little lick of music, that grace note toward the end of a meadowlark's song. Meadowlarks. There were meadowlarks. They sang like angels in the morning. The point I want to make is that loving is a complicated thing. So we better start at the beginning. For years, I've called myself a nature writer, even though I really haven't been sure what that sort of work entails. The poet Mary Oliver in Messenger, her poem, wrote in part, my work is loving the world. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished, which is mostly rejoicing, which is gratitude. That actually seemed like something I could do. You just go to someplace wonderful, open your heart and your journal, and tell the truth. It even seemed like something I could teach. So some time ago, I taught the philosophy of nature up in this emerald jewel of a lake in the Oregon Cascades. The first night, dead dark, we came in late, moon was rising. They got their first assignment. Without making a sound but the lapping of water, launch a canoe and float on the moonlight that's reflected on the lake. Then sit still. That's all. Students said, piece of cake. <laughs> there would be frog song. There would be swirls of light on the water. There might be this silver net thrown by a gust of wind. Maybe they would be bats, but always the feeling they would have of being held by something that they couldn't see. What I wanted to do was disrupt their regular relationship to the world, this ordinary relationship. I wanted to offer a new way of being. But all these students could say when they finally padded back to shore was, am I allowed to talk now? Okay, good. Because what I want to say is I loved that. I loved that place. But what does that mean? The philosopher's curse now cast on the students. What does it mean to love a place? So I met them the next morning at breakfast with a new assignment. Half the students were to walk around the lake making a list of what it means to love a person. The other half of the students were to walk around the lake east asking what it means to love a place. Do you know that an hour later they were back and the two groups had come up with two copies of the same list? I'll read you this list and then let's dig into it. Um, that we'll stop now and then to tell a story or read a passage or ask a question that has no answer. But let me first get these on the table. Here's what my students said. To love a person, 
a baby, a grandmother, a boyfriend, to love a place, a canyon, a mesa, an arroyo, means at least this. Number one, to want to be near it, physically. To want to be joined with it, taken in by it, lost in it. Number two, to rejoice in the miraculous fact of it. How could it be so wonderful and astonishing? And let us note this word astonishing, which comes from the word tonus, Latin tonus, which means thunder. Astonishing to be struck by a sight of something that is so, so, so surprising that it hits you like thunder. Number three, to love a person and a place means to feel whole and embraced, where we might have felt isolated, fragmented, and alone. Number four, to want the best for it, to fear its losses and grieve for its injuries. Number five, to protect it, ferociously, mindlessly, futilely, maybe, maybe tragically, but to be helpless to do otherwise. So love, I submit, is a very complicated changing web of relationships taking together. I say it's not a choice. It's not a dream. It's not a romantic novel. It's a fact. It's an empirical fact about our biological existence. We were born into communities of caring, and we live or die by that good fortune. We're creatures who are born and built to love, both people and places. We're born with the ability to create loving relationships and tend to them. And that complex connectedness nurtures and shapes us and gives us joy and purpose. So let's apply this now to places. To love a person, to love a place means exactly this. And we'll start over again. Number one, to want to be near it physically, to want to be joined with it, taken in by it and lost in it. To illustrate what that means, what I want to do is read the Sidewinder from Earthwild Music, just an excerpt. This might resonate with some of you. This is set. In order to read you this, I need to take you to the um, to Death Valley. After the sizzle of a campfire supper, the fried onions and potatoes, after the balloon of the moon had floated above the dark desert mountains, Frank and I drove out to the sand dunes to listen for sidewinder rattlesnakes. The rising moon poured light on the sand, sharpening the shadow of every bush, each dent in the sand and lizard scrape. We moved carefully, even though the sidewinder is a small snake, only slightly longer than a piccolo, with far weaker venom than its nasty cousins. It didn't take long to find a sidewinder's track. It can't be mistaken for anything else. The sidewinder moves by bracing her tail and the lower part of her body against the sand and throwing her head and body forward. The snake track is a series of diagonal lines drawn across the direction of the snake's movement. We followed the track, expecting that where the snake marks disappeared, we would find the snake buried in sand with just its viper eyes sticking out, waiting in ambush for a careless lizard. But no, we found the snake in debris under a stunted mesquite, perfectly patterned like debris under a stunted mesquite. In the disguise and shadow, we could barely make out its curve. Our eyes couldn't help us much, so we listened. We could hear the rustle of snake scales across dry leaves, signaling that the snake was moving away. Too bad. Maybe we wouldn't get to hear the snake rattle this night. Then one of us, neither would confess, stomped a foot to throw vibrations at the snake. It is impossible not to jump away from the sound of a rattlesnake. Not loud, but inherently alarming. Not a rattle, but a buzz. Not like a snake but like an electrical short. We jumped back and crashed and ended up hugging each other to stay upright. That's what you do when you're surprised and unbalanced, don't you? You hold on tight to any available shoulders, jiggling with laughter. But 
We froze, knowing that only our ears could tell us which way the snake was moving. It was a beautiful night. The breeze smelled of dust and the strong, smoky scent of creosote bushes. Moonlight gleamed over the swells of the dunes. The air was cool on our sunburnt skin. In that absolute silence, we could hear the sand hiss under the slight wake of the snake throwing itself away from us across the dune. In his famous essay on nature, Ralph Waldo Emerson noted that few people can see nature having only a superficial seeing, but for the dedicated watcher, every hour and season yields its tribute of delight. And here quoting, crossing a bare common at twilight under a clouded sky, without having in my thoughts any occurrence of special good fortune, I have enjoyed a perfect exhilaration. I am glad to the brink of fear, standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space. All mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. So I've laughed at that transparent eyeball, but going on, I think Emerson means that sometimes in joyful and unbidden moments, he loses his awareness of seeing and simply sees. He loses his identity as a seeing being and becomes sight. He doesn't try to see or remark on the seeing or rehearse the sights. Seeing is all he is. If Emerson could become an eye, surely Beethoven could become an ear. And could I also learn to listen so closely that I become nothing, losing everything of myself except for the joy of sound? Could I stand on their bare ground my head bathed by the shivering air, my skull a bone china bell, glad to the brink of fear. This is, I think, what my students meant when they were talking about wanting to be joined with it, to be taken in by it, lost in it, to lose yourself in your contemplation of the person or the, or the place. But it's not just wanting to be joined with a beloved person or a place. The second aspect of loving is to rejoice in the miraculous fact of it. How could something or someone be so marvelous? We want to talk about miracles. Let's talk about frogs. And I would love to illustrate this point um, about rejoicing in the miraculous fact of it uh, with frogs because my husband is, in fact, a herpetologist. He studies amphibians and reptiles. We are quite a couple. So let's talk about the Pacific tree frog. <laughs> you should see us try to paddle a canoe. My husband's in the stern. The scientist is in the stern. The philosopher is in the bow. I'm rejoicing in the sounds of the night. And Frank, naturally, Frank is explaining the biomechanics of frog song. Imagine blowing up a balloon, he says. Now imagine blowing up a balloon made of your neck skin, he says. Now imagine blowing it up twice your size. Now, he says, hold it there and tremble all night. The energetics of this music are so tough, so much energy expended that it could kill a frog. Some tree frogs have only enough energy to sing for three nights, three trembling nights. Imagine that. Imagine the silence of the frogs on day four, he says. So I do. <laughs> I sit quietly listening to that silence. Then he says, now, imagine swallowing a moth so big that you have to push it down your throat with your eyeballs. Cricks. If we look across the lake at the path of the moon that's glittering with the discarded wings of a trillion flying ants, and we look at the moon itself, which is bulging out between these black mountains, and we note in passing that we ourselves are sailing at a zillion miles an hour through the darkness, spinning out in a spiral galaxy slung across space 
slung out with all the singing frogs and the quiet ones, all of us up to our eyeballs in swamp. And if we even think about our own sparkling minds on that sparkling lake, if we think about the molecular structure of awareness or the biochemistry of celebration, the universe singing its own praises in the language of science and philosophy, we have to hold on to keep from swamping the canoe. We are astonished. We are shaken. So what does it mean to love a place according to this second criterion? To be blown away by it, to rejoice in the miraculous fact that this place on the planet even exists. You see why I wanted so much to come to the Gila River and experience what you experience every time you walk there. The third thing, the third criterion for loving a place, to be transformed in its presence, to feel whole and embraced where we might have felt isolated, fragmented, and alone. So here's an excerpt from an Earthwild Music essay that's about a musical interval, the augmented fourth. This is the interval, a musical interview that Western composers often use to express human longing. Um, uh, Leonard Bernstein used it in Maria. Maria. Um, loons use it. Wolves loon it. Use wolves use it. We all sing the same interval to express our yearning to connect. Um, we sing the same tune. And so this is an excerpt of a story about the night I discovered just that. For this, I need to take you to Alaska, to the wilderness of the misty fjords. There is no darker night than a night of rain on an island. I sat on an overturned bucket under a tarp stretched between hemlocks. Even under its shelter, it was hard to stay out of the rain. Water bounced off the stems of highbush blueberries and salal, dripped from every stray end of rope, runnelled the length of hemlock roots. I sat hunched, forearms resting on knees, and drank whiskey, closely rationed, somewhere. People were laughing in brightly lit places that smelled of books and coffee. Families were sitting down to dinner somewhere. And fishermen were making fast their boats in harbors, calling out to friends as they hoisted their gear bags to their shoulders and turned toward home. But there were no other people here, and not another point of light for 50 miles in all directions. A loud, mournful wail echoed over the cove where we dropped anchor. I was on my feet, reaching for binoculars, but of course there was nothing to see in that darkness. It sounded again. Wolf, I whispered. The howl started low, leapt up, slid along the water, and sank away. I ducked past the tarp and groped to the edge of the island, and there was the howl again. Nothing answered the wolf's call. I listened, as the wolf must have listened. The question probing the clouds and damping out in the forests, the draperies of lichens and drooping hemlock boughs. But the only response was rain pounding, water on water, and the slosh of tide on rock. I should have felt a loneliness close to despair there in the night, in the rain, a thousand miles from home. What I felt instead was uncommon joy. What was there to long for when all I wanted was what I suddenly had? to be fully part of the night, joined by a song, by a simple shared song, to the loon, to the wolf, to the keening of all humankind, all of us together in this one infinite night, all of us floating in the same darkness, each of us as we howl our loneliness, finding that we are not alone after all.
that's an example of what I mean when I talk about feeling embraced. This is what I think my students meant when they talked about feeling whole and embraced as they did on that water in the dark, when they might have felt isolated or fragmented or alone or disconnected or afraid. So that's the third criterion, to feel embraced by the place. The fourth criterion for loving a place is to want the best for it, to fear its losses, and to grieve for its injuries. Okay, here we go. Last summer, I need to tell you, the forest around the lake where my students encountered that embrace burned to the ground, along with quite a lot of that forest. And now black spires have fallen across the shoreline, and it would not be safe to launch a canoe there at night. I would never take students to that place. The sun is hard on the water. Loving gets harder. How do you love a diminished place? It might be easy to love a green and breezy stretch of the Gila River, but it might be even harder, very harder, to love the barren, the barren sandbar that's lodged with these bloated bodies of dead fish. But here's where the love is even more essential, even more intense. So we better figure this out, because while we're celebrating the natural world, it is being destroyed. As we celebrate the frogs, executives of multinational extractive industries are gathering around mahogany tables to devise business plans that they know will take down the great systems that sustain human life and all the great systems that will sustain the other lives on Earth. Peril, the ecological peril, the moral peril. In the 50 years that I have been writing about nature, 40% of everything that has the breath of life, animals and plants, have been erased from the face of the earth, four out of every 10 beings. The population of North American birds, the red-winged blackbirds, the robins, has been cut by a third. Shorebirds, populations are down 78%. Where I see 22 black turnstones, I should be seeing 100. Of the mammalian biomass on the planet now, only 4% is wild animals. 4% is wild animals. 36%, 36% is human beings. And you want to know what the other 60% is? Cows and other bloviating livestock. Unless the world acts to stop the extinction, unless, it's, unless you can save these river canyons, unless you can save the water, I'll write my last nature essay in a planet that's half as song-graced and life-drenched as the one where I began to write. And my grandchildren will tear out half the pages in their field guides. They won't need them. Thomas Berry says, my generation has done what no previous generation could do because they lack the technological power and what no future generation will be able to do because the planet will never again be so beautiful or abundant. It will take, I'm told, five to seven million years for the planet to recover the abundance and diversity that it has lost during my lifetime, during my lifetime and yours. So our love for places can be measured in grief. The more we love the robins, the more we love the frightened grandmothers, the deeper is our grief when we lose them. This is as it should be. Our grief should be magnificent and terrible to match the magnitude of our loss. A love that's worthy of this world should also be measured in fury. By what right have human decisions, has human greed drained the veins of the world? killing off fully 60% of its beloved small lives, plant, and animals. It's the same sickness that destroys the solace of nature, even as it creates our boundless need for it. 
the exercise of power and the accumulation of wealth unconstrained by foresight or conscience. This cannot continue. So a love that's worthy of this world must be measured in action, which brings us to number five. What does it mean to love a place? Number five, to protect it ferociously, mindlessly, futilely, and maybe tragically, but to be helpless to do otherwise. Mary Oliver said, calling on Mary Oliver again, it's a serious thing to just be alive. It's a serious thing just to be alive on this fresh morning in this broken world. What a sentence. It's a serious thing just to be alive on this fresh morning in this broken world. It's a serious thing. These are grave facts. We are alive. We have been given this fresh morning. Human ingratitude and grasping has broken it. All this is true. So to be honest, then we must intentionally, seriously hold both gratitude and this grief. But I want to be sure that everybody distinguishes grief from despair. Grief is an affirmation of the worth of this world. There is so much beauty and meaning and love in this world, grief says, and we are losing it. So grief is an affirmation. It's a measure of our love for the world. So let us hold grief. Let us welcome it. Let us invite it in. Despair, on the other hand, in my view, is a denial of the worth and the meaning. Life is meaningless. It is with value. If despair comes, this renunciation of the value of the world, slam the door in its sullen face, lock the door. So we have to gird our loins. We have to get up and do the work of loving the world. You know, do you know this phrase, gird our loins? Back when soldiers wore skirts, you know, like in Rome and in, in Greece, when they had these togas and skirts, um, pleated skirts, they would reach between their legs, grab the back of the skirt, pull it up between their legs and tuck it into their belts. That way they would transform their skirts into kind of shorts and they would be then freed up to make the movements they needed to be true warriors. So we also need to gird our loins. We need to prepare ourselves for battle. Now back to Mary Oliver, remember what she said? My work is loving the world, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. Yes, yes, I mean, no, no. That's only the first step. Loving is not a kind of standing still. Loving is an act. To love, your, to, to love a place is to devote your life to its thriving, to defend it, as I have said, fiercely and faithfully for all time. We'll need to start then by paying attention to the glory of what we stand to lose, but then paying attention to the moral urgency of action. Destruction of the world is a sacrilege. Sacrilege. Sacri, sacred. Ligari, steel. Destruction of the world is a theft of sacred things. It is wrong. It's a cosmic sin. So we have to stand strong in our love. Um, what, um, what we might ask then is, um, why me? <laughs> you know, why me? Why are you saying these things to me, Kathy? Um, Noah said the same thing. When Noah was called by God, and he moaned. He says, I'm old. I'm tired. Why me, oh Lord? <laughs> and why me? I'm not a young woman. I carry my years on thick yellow bones. I have cut my hair. My feet are wide. My knees crackle like flames. The tides no longer ebb and flow in my body. Why me, O oh Lord? I can imagine God answering this way. Can you love? Can you still love? I can. So tell me what I have to do. Tell me what love can do. 
But first, tell me where I'm going to find that strength. Rachel Carson wrote, those who contemplate the beauty of the earth will find reserves of strength that will endure as long as life lasts. This has become perhaps the most important sentence in my life. Those who contemplate the beauty of the earth find reserves of strength that will endure as long as life lasts. A little tidal stream saved me once when my mentor died, was run over by an oil truck. When my parents died, it was a beech maple forest in Ohio that saved me. I'm counting on a ponderosa pine forest and a spring Fred Creek to save me when I lose my husband. I'm holding hard to that hope. And I know that my love for the beauty of the earth will sustain me and you in the struggle to defend the future. So let's get down to work. First thing, find your allies and join together. This is the brilliance of the, the Gila River Festival. Find your allies and come together. Oftentimes when I'm speaking to people um, about climate change, someone will always ask me, what can one person do? My answer always is stop being one person. Pick up the phone. Adrian Rich says, my heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I cast my lot with those who age after age perversely with no extraordinary power reconstitute the world. So who are these people? Who are these people who with no extraordinary power reconstitute the world? Who are our allies? Well, nature. Get on nature's committee. Nature is built to heal. Nature is profligate with beauty. Nature is inventive, invasive, brilliant at doing what it does, which is to continue to be. Sign up on that list. The other allies in these fights are like-minded people. If change occurs, it's going to be led not from some sudden moral awakening on the part of the federal government. I don't think so. It will be led from the conscience of the street. That is you, and that is me, and that is the people we haven't met yet because they may not look like you. Find your allies and organize. Come together for the common good. This, I think, is human's superpower, and this is what gives me hope. Wolves have canine teeth. That's their superpower. Antelopes have speed. That's their power. Lemmings have lots of children. What is our superpower? Prometheus said fire. I don't think that's right. I think our superpower throughout history is the ability to come together in groups to act for the common good and to find in that acting an unexpected joy and hope. All through our history, from the very earliest time, what has saved us again and again was this rare and wonderful ability to come together as a group and act for the common good. So then the next step here is to find our work. And it seems to me that there are three, three choices here, and let's just run through them quickly. Number one is you can stand up and say to the, in, to the um, industries of destruction and extraction, you can stand up and you can say, this is wrong and I will not participate. That's good. It's essential, but it's not enough. I think that it's been a mistake for us to take our carbon footprint, the one that's offered to us by, by the way, ExxonMobil, and learn exactly how much to blame you, you are for carbon dioxide caused climate change, forgetting that the agents of structure, the agents of destruction are the fossil fuel industries themselves. What they want you to think is that your work in the world is to be a good consumer. They'll assign you that role. They'll assign you that part. Please recycle every wine bottle. Please reuse every piece of clothing. Please crochet plastic grocery bags into sleeping mats for homeless people. And forget, be distracted 
from the scale of the sin of the industrial destroyers. Of course, we have to do reuse, recycle, all these, because we're, we're adults. We don't leave a mess behind us for the kids to, to clean up. But we have to go beyond that. And so here's the second thing we possibly can do. We can stand up to the industries of destruction and extraction and say, this is wrong, and I will not allow it. That's better. And it might make a difference. Not another mountaintop, not another river, not another forest, not another estuary can be traded away for cash. These are not industries to take or sell. They belong to the future of the everlasting earth. So go to the mountaintop, go to the river, go to the estuary, gird your loins and stand up for what you love too much to lose. That's a good step. I suggest number three, you can stand up and say, this is wrong and we will not participate. We will not allow it. And we will show you a better way. This is a call to the greatest exercise of the human imagination the world has ever seen. This is the marine reserve. This is half earth devoted to wilderness. This is the community garden. This is the replacement of fossil fuels with energy generation that is not stupid, that is not life destroying, that is not sickening, that is not thunderous. I can't imagine that we haven't yet succeeded in freeing ourselves from moving around while we're powered by the sequential explosion of gasoline. This is the wild and scenic river protection. Congratulations to you. This is grubbing out tamarisk and planting willows. This is removing dams and reclaiming water rights. This is the Gila River Festival. There's still time to do it right, to imagine a better way and imagine it into existence, but not much. These are tough times and it's easy to despair, but at the exact moment that despair is intellectually justified, it's morally impossible. The very facts that paralyze actions are the facts that require it. We love the lives on this planet and they are being taken from us. We must, as a matter of will and courage, accept the truth of our time. We don't have a choice. We have to make good on the promise that was whispered, that we whispered into these, the wispy hair of our children when they were born. What did we say to our children? We said, I will always love you. I will keep you safe. I will give you the world. We didn't mean we'll give you whatever's left scattered and torn on the table after the great going out of business scale sale. We said, I will give you this beautiful, life-sustaining, bird-graced, tree-shaded, rain-polished world. Can we do it? Is there hope? I think there is, but let's be clear again about what hope has to mean. You know, Emily Dickinson uh, wrote this poem. Very famous, and every time anybody talks about hope, they always read Emily Dickinson's poem. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And usually, when they have that poem, it's illustrated by this little blue bird, this little blue bird of happiness. Wow, that's the wrong bird. That is the wrong bird. Um, this, the, if there is a bird that perches in the soul, and sings the song without the words that gives us hope, it's gonna be something with talents. Rebecca Solnit said, hope isn't a lottery ticket that you sit on the couch clutching. Hope is the red ax that you seize to break down the door in an emergency. So here's how I will end with this, <laughs> with this call to action. Call in all the feathered things that are perched somewhere in your weary soul. Call in 
the harpy eagles and the sharp shinned hawks. Call in the booming cassowaries and the shrikes. Call in whatever character traits Velociraptor and the extravagantly feathered Tyrannosaurus Rex have embedded in your reptilian brain. Hope is not all we need. What we need is strength, strength in numbers and strength in moral conviction. What we need is shrieking, roaring courage. Thank you. And now I think that we have time for questions. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Kathleen. It was a wonderful presentation. And I can hear everyone applauding. Unfortunately, we can't see them or hear them applauding, but you know, I will just applaud you on their behalf. Everyone, we have the opportunity for questions and answers. And if you would just type your questions in the Q&A, um, it would be great. And we, I will be glad to read your questions to Kathleen and we'll get her answers. So feel free to um, type in your questions now. And Kathleen, it just strikes me that, um, you know, a lot of us want to get into action right away. We know there's a lot to do and we just really want to get into action. But my sense is that we need to go into the silence of these wild places to really be guided as to what's ours to do. We need to go into the silence of these gorgeous places in order to get the kind of guidance about what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. I, I think that you're absolutely right. Well, we owe that to ourselves, first of all, to gather our strengths mm -hmm. that we can find in those places, but also to remind ourselves of what's at stake. Mm -hmm. This is not a small battle. This is not an insignificant skirmish. This is a battle for the sources of life itself. Mm -hmm. And um, the enemy, and I will talk about enemy, use those terms, is implacable and very, very clever. And um, so to come to the battle without a clear sense of your goals or come to the battle without a clear sense of the sources of your strength, I think is a mistake. So yes, I would agree with you, Susan, that, um, that it's going to be wild places that provide us not only with the courage, but with the moral resolve. This work has to be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really also about what is mine personally to do, because each of us have our own gifts and talents. Well, it's wonderful that you put that that way, because that's how we begin. Um, if you say, what is my work? You should ask, what is my gift? What have I been given that I now owe, that, I, that I'm grateful for, that I now owe some sort of return for? I have been given these gifts. I've been given hands that work. I've been given hands that can even type. I've been given a mouth that can speak. Um, what do I owe in return? Mm -hmm. um, and that'll help us uh, help us decide. You know, I'm working on a I'm working on a dichotomous key. I'm working on a kind of a questionnaire uh, where I will ask people to identify one of two paired questions: Do you like to work with people, or do you like to work by yourself? And that'll send you to another pair of questions. Do you like to work in a confrontational way or do you like to work together with people? And that'll send you to another one. And finally, when you get to all the end of these things where you describe how you really like to work and what you're really good at, it will suggest an action that you can take. Uh -huh. um, so that, that'll come out relatively soon, but it's not ready yet. Very good. That would be wonderful. So well, many we people want to know, what can I do? What can I do? Right, exactly. There's so much to be done. What can I do? You know, where do I start kind of thing? We do have a question from Ralph. He says, what to think about hunting and fishing? Well, I've just come back from Alaska, uh, where I spent the summer, where I um, ate from the land. Um, I ate coho salmon and crabs. 
that I caught with my own hands. I ate venison that my friends killed. So I have very different notions about it because um, I think that if we are going to eat meat, then I think that we should do it with the most utmost respect. Um, so I, I have mixed feelings about it. I think that that there is such a thing as an honorable harvest. And I think there's such a thing as a dishonorable harvest. Um, and that we should be very careful to be on the right side of that one. Yeah. And sometimes the harvest is necessary to so we don't have overpopulation. What do you mean? In other words, the animals aren't overpopulating a particular area and uh, maybe devastating the area, overgrazing or whatever. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, there are times we have to be careful with that one, too, because there are times when we use killing as a solution to problems that we created that we could solve other ways. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking in particular of the Columbia River up by where I live, where there are dams that are stopping the salmon. And so the salmon mill around underneath the dams and the seals are coming in to eat them. Mm -hmm. And people say, well, there is no possible solution to this but to shoot the seals. That isn't true. The solution is to break out the dam so that those fish can go up and spawn. So whenever anyone says to me, there is there is no solution but the destructive one, I say, well, you haven't thought enough. Mm -hmm. Thank you for clarifying that. Any other questions, everyone? We'll just leave a few more seconds for questions here. Sure. I think your presentation was so um, complete and so, and people are, they're taking it in now. Um, let me just say that I think that the, from what I read of the Gila River Festival and of your organizations, um, one of the wonderful things you're doing is helping people figure out how to come together, how to ally themselves with the natural world and how to take action, um, both to stop harms and to create alternative solutions. And so I think that you're a very fine model of what can be done. And I would encourage everyone out there to, to check it out, join mm -hmm. up with you. Yes, absolutely. There's a question here. How can we bring attention to the main problem facing the planet of too many humans? That may be the main problem. It may not be. It may be too much consumption by humans. Um, I am a fan of E.O. Wilson's notion of half Earth, the notion that we need to dedicate half of the world's surface, oceans and land, to wild creatures, that we have taken ownership of everything, assuming that everything is owned by us. Um, and that's time to get over that conceit and um, make room, in fact, make half the room available to other creatures. That's hard to do um, without a great deal of imagination with the kind of population that we have. I am encouraged that the population, human population growth seems to be slowing. And that seems to be attributable in many ways to rising standards of living and rising standards of education for women and, and increased power of women over their own bodies. So um, I, I, <laughs> philosophers always quarrel with the question. So I'll, I'll quarrel with the question that that's their, uh, the largest source of our problems. It's a big one, but we are, I think there's some hope in that along those lines. Yes. Mary is asking uh, or saying a comment, harvest should not be used in taking animal life, in other words, hunting, but in using plants, harvest. Oh, the word harvest. Yes. Oh, that's a very interesting corrective. Mm -hmm. Very interesting corrective. And Stephen is saying in yeah. your... Excuse ahead, me. And one more thing. I mean, the, the, the underlying point on that is that, that harvest becomes then a, um, a euphemism for kill. Yeah. 
and uh, we should be paying attention to that. Thank you. Right, right. Stephen is saying in your 50 years of advocacy, who have been your models and heroines among writers and activists? Rachel Carson. Absolutely. Hands down, Rachel Carson. Um, she had three things that almost never come together in the same person. She was a beautiful writer. Mm -hmm. She was a strong scientist with a good reputation as a scientist. And she had a moral passion based on her love of the world that was beyond compare. So when she spoke about a sense of wonder, it came from deep inside her. And it was a sense of wonder that propelled her into this work to save the birds and human, human health too. So Rachel Carson, absolutely. I read Rebecca Solnit, who always has something interesting to say. You know, first, I'm going back to the beginning of my writing time. And now 50 years later, here is Rebecca Solnit. I, I think she is, she is one smart person. Writers, obviously, I, I read Mary Oliver. I am a big fan of Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is a writer of, from the, an elder in the Potawatomi, the Citizens Potawatomi Band, and a botanist who has written this beautiful book called Braiding Sweetgrass, which everyone must read. So that's a start. And Layla is saying, what a powerful, insightful, poetic call to action. I wonder if Kathleen could speak to the ways in which the language we speak limits, delimits, and predetermines or predisposes us to see and experience the world in a certain way. And how can we flex our use of language to reimagine our relationship to the world? That's, that's a very, very interesting question. And how wonderful it would be to be able to write that book. Other people have, to a certain extent. The way in which our language is built around nouns and things um, invites us to think of the world as a mechanistic place rather than a spirit-laden place. Um, if we could talk about um, a body of water as a place where the waters move around or, or moving waters or something rather than a place, um, we might have a different notion of it. We do buy into this mechanistic view of the world, I think, because of our, our noun-based English language. Um, we absolutely lack words that we really need. Biodiversity needs to be replaced by something much more beautiful and rich. Um, it seems like a technical term, but to express glory, the glory of, of the glory of the abundance and diverse and, and um, changeability of life. So somebody work on replacing biodiversity, please. Somebody work on replacing um, sustainable because it has been co-opted by the users to mean sustainable use to mean that we can keep on acting this way forever without harming ourselves. I think um, we need some way of speaking um, about future beings that gives them agency and um, reality rather than some sort of dream. You, you get me going here on, on all the kinds of things that we, we need to, um, to think about. But there are, I mean, the, the premise of that question, I think is right, that, that our language shapes our, shapes what is possible to think. And I'm seeing in the uh, chat box a recommendation for this book called Lost Words by McFarlane, Robert McFarlane. It uh, is a response to the changes in the dictionary in England where they started taking out words like acorn and fen and all these natural words that are now being lost and replacing them with words like chip and um, I don't know what, quark and other kinds of words, uh, technical words. So that's a, that's a lovely book. Good idea. Thank you. And this person, oh, good, Donna. She stopped using the term natural resources. Absolutely, because it implies that the land and the water are 
there for us to use. Human resources, that's a scandal too. There's a question in the chat. What about privilege, those who can experience nature and those who have difficulty? Once again, we have a word problem, don't we? Because we all do experience nature. I mean, we all breathe. We all eat. We all seek shade. But that's a blithe answer to what is a harder question. That is that that there are beauties and comforts that are not equally shared around the world. People say that you can map a city a city's um, racial divides by mapping the trees and noticing that the trees go to the white privileged people and the neighborhoods that are more predominantly people of color don't have them. So, so there is no question that, that the comforts and the solace of the natural world are unevenly divided. Um, what we can do about that, I think that, that this notion that some people have of bringing people out to experience it is, I, I, I don't, I don't know that that's, that, that is another kind of privilege, another expression of another kind of privilege. Um, what we need to do is, is deeply involve ourselves in issues of environmental justice so that people can live, regardless of their race, regardless of their income, people can live where the air is clean and people can live where their children aren't gonna be getting asthma um, and, and where they have trees with shade. Um, it's an unequal distribution that is a matter of injustice. Uh, Star is saying Klimmer seem, uh, seems to be proposing or promoting a new for Western cultures kind of ethics based on value reciprocity. Did you want to comment on that? But of what Robin is, is saying, as I understand it, is that we are given incredible gifts, the air, the water, the birds, the, pro the, the, the oceans, that we, we are daily, daily given gifts, and that we have an obligation two obligations. One is to be grateful. We want to honor the gifts that we're given, notice them, hold them in our hands, acknowledge them as beautiful, express our gratitude. And then there's an additional obligation, and that is in some way to reciprocate, to, to give back to the giver of the gifts. Um, I was uh, up in a, a, a cabin in Alaska, and the people who, uh, a couple of years ago, and the people in the who lived next door, who were my hosts, kept giving me gifts. They, you know, a, a basket of, of high bush cranberries and a pizza with venison meat on it and a drawing by a little girl in a red dress. And I said, Hank, I, I, I don't know how to accept these gifts. And he said, then you are going to have to learn. And I said, how do I learn to accept the gifts? And he said, by practicing. I thought that was right. And so now when gifts come to me, I practice, I practice noticing them. Gratitude is an extraordinary thing, I think, and you people out there can tell me if this is true, but I think you can't be grateful and sad at the same time. I think if you're really truly feeling gratitude, you can't feel sorrow, not sure. But in that case, gratitude is another one of the gifts that we're being given. Yes. Elaine is saying, how do we help young people tear themselves away from their phones and get them thinking about these things? So many of those in this fight seem to be like me in the second half of life. <laughs> it's um, parents' question. It's the grandparents' question. Everybody's asking that question, but the kids. <laughs> I've seen so many different ways people are trying to do that, bribing them, timing them, putting machines on their machines. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. 
And partly it's such a difficult question because there are geniuses marketing those things and designing them so that they are addictive. I mean, why did people say, well, why did everybody smoke cigarettes? It's because there are geniuses creating an addictive product. Why are so many people using fossil fuels? Because there are marketing geniuses making us think that we must do that and then dicting us to them. Why are all the children so intrigued with these games and the machines they play? It's because it is a business plan. It is a business plan to hook these children on an addictive device. Mm -hmm. So I think if we think of it that way, as a kind of iniquity, then we might be more, um, more resolved about saving our children from them. Uh, Ron is asking, do you think the dualistic worldview we have inherited is our is a source of our difficulties? Yes. Yes. The dualistic world in which there is matter and there is spirit and the whole world around us is simply inert matter moved by physics, laws that can be expressed in numbers. When this came into the world, um, actually in the time of classical Greece, and then again reinforced during the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, it left its stripped spirit from the world. It stripped out the spirit, it stripped out the animism, it stripped out the intentionality of a world that really is more than just material law-abiding stuff. Um, the world is unfolding, it is self-actualizing, it is, it is um, communicating, it is, it is, Emerge, it is creating emergent properties. It is evolving. It is changing all the time. It is not just stuff. And it's a terrible mistake that um, we make when we think it is because it allows us then to treat it as if it had no value. So, yeah, some people think it's you know, the genesis of our problems right there. <laughs> you can blame it on the philosophers. <laughs> yeah. I don't see any other questions yet, but I, everyone, I would really encourage you to read through the chat because there are some amazing um, comments there and sharings, um, you know, just fabulous uh, things that people have put in the chat. Are there any other questions, anyone? Please feel free to go ahead. Now I'm also looking in the chat, but you can also enter those questions in the Q&A. We'll just leave a second for other questions. Um, uh, Nanda said, the world is self-actualizing. Love it. This is great. Love it. Honor it. Respect it. Yeah, exactly. Um, someone uh, who has just um, sent in a question said, thanks for your words. I don't know why I asked this, but do you believe the earth has a soul? I think of St. Francis. Well, of course, being a philosopher, I'm going to say, what, what do you mean soul? What does that mean? Um, do I think that the world is alive? Yes, absolutely. Do I think it's changing? Absolutely. Do I think it's sacred? I do indeed. Um, whether I think it has a soul, I guess I don't need to think of it in terms of having a soul, which is a kind of a concept that came to us from, it's a, it's a concept of, of that humans granted themselves souls when they took it away from material objects. Um, spirit, yes. Soul, I, I, I'm not so sure because I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, Marilyn is asking, does the earth need us humans? Would the earth be better off without us? Yes, it does. I have this view that the universe needs people. It needs people, the, the, that people are the, the means that the universe has to explore its own meaning and to celebrate it. That, that if there were no humans, I don't know who would turn their 
bodies to the sky and exult. So I think that the trembling, I, I think that, that the earth does need, I think that the universe needs people to trender, tremble in wonder at itself. That's not to say that humans aren't doing a terrible job of it, but I think it would be a great loss to the universe if it didn't have beings here who would say, hey, how's that working? I don't. I want to understand that. I want to be part of it. I want to love it. I want to exult in it. I want to, to exclaim over it and be astonished. Absolutely. One more question here. James is asking, I like how you use religious language to describe the greatness of things and the depth of the problems. Actually a comment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, I do, you know, um, I have no problem using religious terms the, um, I, or spiritual terms. Um, people often say that there's a, something quite spiritual about my work, and I was puzzled by that because I don't think of myself as a religious person. Um, so I went to my colleague, Marcus Borg, down the hall, and I said, Mark, what's the difference between religious and spiritual? And he said, religion, let me get this right, religion is to spirituality as marriage is to love. Or let me put it the other way. Spirituality is to religion as love is to marriage. And I thought, that's really interesting. So spirituality is the impulse. So spirituality then is the impulse to, to honor and to love. It's the reaching out. And religion then is the um, organizational aspect of that. I thought that, that that's a way then that a person could understand being spiritual without being religious. Mm -hmm. Yes, that makes sense. Any last questions, everyone? We have about four more minutes, maybe three more minutes to go. Just any last questions? Oh, um, Lisa is saying religious religion can be thought of as a pointer to the spiritual. There you go. I think it goes that way too. That's interesting. Yes. <laughs> so we'll just take another second and see. Did you have something else you wanted to share about that? Well, they're just pointing out that I think religion, one of the things that religion has that science doesn't have is this language of celebration, the language and ritual of celebration. And I just love those and, 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 and need them and um, seek them out and try to replicate them in my classes and in my, and in my writing. Um, the, uh, the language of celebration is something that's, that we perhaps need to practice. And, um, and religion can provide ways of doing it. They have rituals of celebration, they have music of celebration, people coming together in celebration. And um, that's that's a beautiful thing. Kathleen, I'm not seeing any more questions. And I just want to thank you for just an amazing presentation and for just sharing yourself. I know it would have been great if we could have been together in the same room or yeah. the same place. <laughs> we wish we could do that. And we hope that we'll get the opportunity to do that sometime in the future. Thank you. And it's it's been such an honor and a pleasure for me to be your moderator tonight. And I'll turn it back to Donna now, who's just popped up. Thank, Thank you, Susan. Susan. I'm so thankful that this is the year that Kathleen Dean Moore, you were at last able to join us for the Gila <laughs> River Festival. I, I really feel like your lovely and inspiring and honestly pretty heartbreaking talk was definitely worth waiting for and is extremely timely for what we're, the, all the challenges we're facing right now. Susan Beck, I wanna thank you for moderating tonight's presentation. And thanks so much to all of you here who joined us for the interesting discussion and for attending the 17th annual Gila River Festival.